If you read the issues of the 1917 Falmouth Packet, you will find a combination of joy, speculation, sorrow, dread, and ordinary life flowing along its way day after day. Perhaps this could be said about any newspaper at any point in our history, but the year might have already given you a clue as to why we stopped and had a look. 1917. We are right in the middle of World War I. Just three years earlier, in October 1914, McLean, a Canadian magazine, had dubbed this war with a name it would be remembered by. A fragment from McLean says, and I quote, Some wars name themselves. This is the Great War. There is something darkness cannot destroy. There is something darkness cannot destroy. To these we Great Britain expected that every man would do his duty, and Cornwall showed up in numbers. It has been calculated that the southernmost duchy lost more than 6,300 men from across all of Cornwall. Curiously all, except one village, Herodsfoot, nearly scarred. The only place in Cornwall not to lose a man to this war. The devastation from this event created ripples that undoubtedly shaped the history of the world. One of the things that changed forever is how the British Empire and the Commonwealth would deal with the remains of those who died in service. Last year, in 2019, the whole world remembered that a century had passed since November 11, 1918, Armistice Day. A hundred years ago, on the 11th hour of the 11th day, on the 11th month, hostilities were scheduled to stop on the Western Front. In effect, it took slightly longer than that as some shelling continued until midnight. But the end of the Great War had been set in motion. A year later, we'd see the final peace agreement signed with the Treaty of Versailles. In this episode, we study how the Commonwealth went about processing the thousands upon thousands of deaths from the Great War. We retell a little bit more about the history of Famo Cemetery at this time, and we take a look at one of its World War I graves, the grave of Shunshin. Cabin boy of the Merchant Navy's SS Sequoia, his gravestone recently erected by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. I am Sherezada Garcia Rangel, and this is On the Hill. On a bright sunny day in June 2018, glorious like those days that make you love Cornwall just a little bit more, I took my first walk through Falmouth Cemetery with the intention of finding possibilities. I met Tony Casey there by the red post box near one of the entrances, and he guided me through lines and lines of graves, stopping to point out the gravestones he had found interesting and had already begun to research. Many of those we explore in this podcast. You have already heard about Sir John Elaine and Mary Monk. They were both pointed out to us by Tony. But on this day, among the fascinating stories like Candy Carly's, Polly Lanyon, and George Shift, and already comfortable enough with the layout of the cemetery, I peered off and made my way toward the brambles. 
we were at the very top of the hill. From then, the slope began a steep journey down to Swampool Lake. Tony had mentioned that there is a woman buried in a World War grave, and he hadn't found her yet. I wanted desperately to find her for him. We're still looking, although I think we already know her name. But I made my way to where one such grave unusually tucked away, separate from his fellow servicemen. You see, it is usual for World War graves to be together. You can find many examples of this in the family cemetery. But this one was standing on its own, with cut grass around it, except for the chest-high brambles on the right of the grave growing out of another. The beautiful summer had been encouraged them to grow, and in true Cornish fashion, they were ready to take over the other graves in the vicinity. I bent down to read the inscription and suddenly was in awe. Shunshin, cabin boy, merchant navy, died on the 13th of February, 1917. I attached my surprise to the fact that in my previous visits to Cornish cemeteries, I hadn't encountered someone without a British name. Of course, Shunshin's name could be British too, but its origin, just like my name, lay elsewhere. As I stood by Shunshin's grave, with Tony already making his way to the rows of warble graves at one of the outcrops down the hill, a robin perched on a branch from a blackberry bush, which was barely touching Shunshin's gravestone. The bird, plump and lovely, looked at the stone and at me, unperturbed by my presence, clearly familiar with this branch and this place. I felt it a sign and knew that despite my fascination with other cemeteries, I had to start here. Here, in a place where there was someone from somewhere else. I know perhaps this sounds strange, but when you're an immigrant, a young one like me, it is difficult to relate to cemeteries. None of yours are buried there. They are far away. The things that kill those here might be completely different from what killed those there. The anchor that generations of your neighbors and workmates might have in these places, you don't. And yet, there I was realizing that there were others like me. Had Shunshin's mom learned about his death? Where was his home? Who had taken care of his affairs after he died serving far away? His story raised the questions I wanted to answer, and it is this story that anchored me to Falmouth Cemetery. On the 16th of February 1917, the Falmouth packet highlights an inquest going on. The subtitles read, Submarine's victim's cabin boy hit by a shell. The short article, only three small paragraphs long, explains how Shunshin died on board the SS Sequoia. The Sequoia was sailing Singapore for Portishead when it was attacked in the Bristol Channel by a U-boat. Robert George James, a skipper of the steamer, related that 27-year-old Shunshin was originally from Canton, China. When the event happened, a total of four shots were fired. Two hit the sequoia, one hit Shunshin. The article goes on to explain that Shunshin was found lying across the companion door with his head outside. It also explains that he did not see any submarine immediately, only when he was a couple of miles away. Killed by a shell from an enemy submarine, Shunshin was the only victim of this attack. And this information is the only one we have about him. We know more about the Elsa Sequoia than we know about Shunshin. 
The tanker was built in 1908 in Glasgow and went on to have different lives under different names. It reappears decades later in World War II, when it participated on the Asiatic Pacific campaign. We wonder, had Shunshin lived, would he follow her that far, perhaps all the way back home? Would he have risen from cabin boy to another position? Shunshin's commemorate certificate from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission reads, In memory of cabin boy Chung Shin, SS Sequoia, Glasgow, Merchantile Marine, who died on the 13th of February 1917. Remembered with honour, Falmouth Cemetery, Cornwall. Commemorated in perpetuity by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. In our research, we found a note someone had made about an inscription on a tombstone in Falmouth, now destroyed. Filed with the rest of the documents pertaining the burial sites of this town, the note is written on a scrap of paper and fails to reveal the location of the grave. Cemeteries are places of information and mystery. We have already shared with you all we know about Shunshin, but we found the content of this inscription fitting to his story. So before we go on to share more information about how the UK and the Commonwealth went about putting their dead to rest and about what was happening on the UK at that time, here we share it with you. The stormy winds and raging sea have tossed me to and fro, yet by the providence of God I'm anchored here below. And now at anchor doth I lay with many of our fleet, and soon we must set sail, our heavenly Christ to meet. One in ten of the men and women who served in the Great War across the Commonwealth died. The number of total losses in the war has been declared as one million. A million dead. The number of losses overwhelmed the different nations. The British government announced that the bodies of those who died abroad would not be repatriated. Instead, they were buried where they fell. Their graves recorded by their brothers-in-arms or the military authorities but these records weren't always complete or accurate. More than any war before, where the number of people in service was smaller, the impact of World War I on the civilian population was immense. Loved ones, friends, towns and cities across the UK, mourning their losses, were upset about the unbridgeable distance between their dead and the place where they finally were laid to rest. Sir Fabian Ware, after being declared too old to join the British Army at 45 years of age, managed to join the British Red Cross and received command of a mobile ambulance unit serving in France. 
There, he noticed a lack of a system for recording and signaling the graves of those killed in combat. He established an organization to look after this. By May 1916, his organization had recorded over 50,000 graves. Founded by Sir Fabian Ware and constituted by Royal Charter in 1917, the same year Chunchin was killed, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, as it is now called, was created with the purpose of making and keeping official records of the war dead, of caring for their graves and cemeteries, and for building memorials in their name. These memorials are a frequent site in cities and towns across the UK and Europe, where you can also find world graves and cemeteries. But all of this can also be found across the world in over 156 different countries, thanks to the efforts of the CWGC. Take a moment to imagine that for a second. The physical reminder of the loss of the wars spread across the world. These events, which changed history, also changed the layout, design, and maintenance of cemeteries. For those of us who study cemeteries, something interesting begins to happen then. The purpose of the CWGC included creating a headstone for every dead. The headstones would be permanent, as would be the cemeteries, and the headstones themselves would be the same. With the aims of the CWGC, it was made clear that, and I quote, where the sacrifice had been common, the memorial should be also. End quote. This is a quote from 1920, after World War I. The constitution of this commission experienced some changes along the way, but it has kept true to the core aims. One of them explains that, and I quote, there should be no distinction made on account of rank, race, or faith. It's interesting to see how a society like the British one, that in this time still made those distinctions, had made a purpose not to make them in death. Religious differences and burial costume were also to be respected, and families would get a say on how to bury their dead. In the face of such great losses, the purpose became to demonstrate a united empire welded into one where those who fought together should remain together in a community of sacrifice. By the time that the Great War came along, the famous cemetery had been further extended from the initial extension we have been studying on episode 1 and 2. Articles in the form of packet from 1913 all the way to 1917 show an ongoing discussion amidst the town, the parishes and Lord Kimberley to further purchase another plot of the adjacent land and yet again extend the cemetery. Calculations were made as to how long would the current site last how many dead still fit in the land. Other sites were also considered, as the price Lord Kimberley suggested was prohibiting for some. Eventually, an arrangement was found, a loan secured, and the cemetery extended. This is where the people of Falmouth found themselves in 1917. The influenza epidemic was already making the rounds around town, and the war kept sending loved ones to be buried at Falmouth. According to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, in 1915 and in 1918, Falmouth became a center for ship repairs. 
It was also a place of transit, a place of rest, a place which didn't see direct combat, and yet so many who had come and gone there. A plan for new ground at the Falmouth Cemetery, signed by the borough surveyor P.O. Fell in November 1917, earmarks a section of the cemetery for sailors and soldiers. It supersedes an earlier one from September 1917 and designates grave spaces of 8 feet by 4 feet. You can find an image of this on our Twitter feed at We Are On The Hill, or you can visit the Falmouth History Archives in the Poly for a glimpse of the original. We believe that this is when the row of World War graves halfway down the cemetery was set aside for this purpose. Shunshin was already buried in the cemetery, and he might have missed this effort to group them together. According to the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, in total, Farmer Cemetery contains 87 First World War burials, including two unidentified firemen from the SS Clan Common. In the cemetery, there is also a cross of sacrifice, a memorial erected in every cemetery in France, Belgium, the UK, and anywhere else in the world where a cemetery holds more than 40 World War I burials. If you have taken a walk in any kind of Western cemetery, you might have noticed the range of differences gravestones can afford us. Mausoleums, vaults, family graves, sculptures, wooden and Celtic crosses. The intricacy and originality is one of the aesthetic attractions of these built environments for death. Some of our most famous cemeteries, like Montparnasse in Paris, are well known for the variety of their graves. Indeed, it is this characteristic and its preservation to this day that earned Falmouth Cemeteries its grade two listed status as a high Victorian garden cemetery. The World War gravestones are made of rectangular slabs of white marble, which curve slightly at the top. They were engraved insignias of the service, rank, and dates of those commemorated there. Sometimes they also include inscriptions from their families who got permission to give a personal message as a sign of affection. Death had to be managed, and the Commonwealth War Graves Commission secured that it would be so, regardless of the passage of time. The CWGC looks after all cemeteries and graves of the war dead to this day. In the 11th of May, 1922, King George V visited the Tyne Cot Cemetery in Ypres Salient. This cemetery was called Tyne Cot for the resemblance that the Northumbria Fusiliers found in the German pillboxes in the site to the Tyneside workers' cots. The pillboxes are concrete dugout guard posts with narrow horizontal slits which hauntingly look like eyes. The cemetery was designed by Sir Herbert Baker, one of the four principal architects who directed the construction of over 1,200 cemeteries and memorials across the Western Front. King George V was there at Tynecote Cemetery to open it to the public. This is the largest ever Commonwealth cemetery for any war. Famously, in his address, he said, We can truly say that the whole circuit of the earth is girdled with the graves of our dead. In the course of my pilgrimage, I have many times asked myself whether there can be more potent advocates of peace upon earth through the years to come than this massed multitude of silent witnesses to the desolation of war. King George V, Tynecott Cemetery.
Just like with the news of the victory at Trafalgar, which were heard in Falmouth first, the people of this town had early access to the news of the armistice on the 11th of November 1918. In Falmouth in World War I, an excellent resource collated and written into a book by the Poly and the Falmouth History Archive, it is described how the Falmouthians found out about this life-changing event several hours earlier than the rest of the United Kingdom. The party started down here. At 9.10 on that Monday morning, the sirens, hooters and bells of all the ships in the harbor announced the armistice. The hooter from the foundry and the siren at the electric wards below the beacon joining quickly. The racket of peace must have woken up a few late morning risers. Heard across the town, the commotion brought everyone out into the streets. The town's major confirmed the news from the town hall steps, and the moor filled with people. Peace had finally come. It was now time for the great rejoicing. Did Chunshin's family learn about his death? When did they learn about the armistice? Had he any family? A young man, halfway across the world, at civil service in a Western war. Chunshin, lest we forget. As in this episode, I have written the creative response. I asked Amy Lilwo, whom you heard in episode two, to read out my piece inspired by Shunshin's grave and history, and to interview me later. Let's hear how I fare in this momentary change of roles, shall we? Here is my creative piece, read by Amy Lilwall. He wrings his hands once more and puts the clean shirts to dry on lines tied to everything on the hull. The frigid water clings to each wrinkle on his hands and runs down his arms into his shirt a precise line down his ribs, dense as oil. He misses warmth of any kind when he's on board, only sensing a memory of it when he runs the length of the ship. Sequoia, like the name of a mystic from the stories of his youth. Sequoia, he whispers to her when she groans over a tall wave. Sequoia, when she trembles from nearby combat. SS, he says to start his morning prayers. She cradles him in return. These days, the captain is always awake when he walks to prepare the water for shaving. Steam dances in transparent swirls over the captain's mirror. Morning, the captain says. Did you have a good night? Shin nods and continues about his work, laying the brush, the razor and a clean towel by the mirror. How's the boiler? Resolved, captain. He unscrews the tin of pomade and smells it to check if it's still fresh. The mint rushes down his throat. I'll have breakfast first, the captain says. Shin rushes away to the kitchens and brings back his porridge. As the captain takes his breakfast, Shin looks at the maps on the desk and begins to put them in order. These waters, Chung. Fortune has blessed us so far. The first mate said he never saw any karma. Last night, Shin was teaching some of the younger cabin boys how to repair ropes when the first mate, a tall, robust man in his late forties, walked by them. His combed orange beard bobbed as he smoked his pipe. It was long past midnight and the sea was calm, whispering against the ship. 
a piece of silk caressed by the wind. MacLeod, the first mate, sat by them on the deck and sang to them and to the full moon. Such calm, he had said, reminds me of the Bay of Scale. It is the calm that worries me, Chung. In the rough, what can hide there? But like this, I pray. Are we far from Portishead? Shin asked. We make port tomorrow, midday, the captain said. Shin filled his cup with coffee and left. Shin spends the rest of the morning training a boy, small and thin, young as his brother was when he last saw him. He teaches him how to navigate the dark hull without getting lost. The boy shies away from the boilers, clinging to the furthest wall whenever they go by. There's a rumour going around that they are haunted. Lies, just a malfunction, but no reassurance has calmed the boy. Let him be a little afraid, Shin thinks. There are bigger things to fear these days. I heard it was over 140, James Stewart says. 140? Nonsense. I reckon it's less than 30, Andrew Smith says and turns to watch Shin walk to them. The skippers like to count the dead on their brakes. Smith was once a cabin boy, he told Shin, rose quickly when he worked on the Merion. Stuart takes a deep breath of his cigarette and blows the smoke in Shin's direction. He brushes it away. A couple of liars, John Fenton says. Liars, I say, the lot of you. Saw her go down myself. Hit once, but the doors must have been closed on time. Hit two, three, four times. Still floating. What a beauty. Took the crew out on time, they did. Managed to beach her. But they knew where she was. Fenton takes the cigarette off Smith's hand, takes a drag and hands it over to Shin. They came back the next day and got her, the bastards. She was empty, but they got her. After lunch, the captain took a long nap, the only sleep he'd had in the last couple of days. Shin went about the cabin, cleaning and organising with a practised manner. He dusted the maps and traced the coastlines with a finger, thinking about home. Every night, as he rocked in his worn hammock on the hull, breathing in the boys, the skippers and the officers, soothed by their snores, Shin thought of home, of the small thatched hut not far from the river, of the sands on the banks and the freshwater fish he used to bring for dinner, of his brothers and the game they had invented with smooth river stones, of mother, her sandals, the cloth tied around the waist of her apron, the tea in the evenings with a flavoured rice bowl. Rushing below deck, Shin missed the sound cutting above the ship. He also missed the first strike, his mind still on his home river, on the bamboo rafter and the man with the impeccable blue shirt who always gave him passage. He heard the second hiss of the missile as it headed to the water, failing to strike its target. He walked through the door, thinking now about the youngest cabin boy, about how he might be frightened. He fell, imagining his mother's fingers wrapped around the short broom as she brushed the deck of the hut like he brushes the deck of the ship. Held and rocked on the sequoia's floor, he gains a second to dream of embracing his brothers, wet river sand on his feet, mother joining them soon. The shadow appears by the open gash on the ship. It sinks back into the water. Okay, um, so that was the creative piece just read by me. Yes. 
Yes, absolutely. Written, of course, by Dr. Sherazad Garcia-Rangel. I use the doctor, she's sniggering. Thank you. Um, so we are lucky enough to have her in the studio with us today. And um, I've prepared a few questions regarding her piece as it teases out a lot of themes that aren't necessarily explained, as is often the case with writing and literature. That's right. Um, but this is this is quite a sad story that you've chosen to address. Mm. Um, and when I say chosen to address, uh, I believe that there are a few challenges in nailing down this story. Um, could you take us through a few of these challenges, perhaps? Yes. Um, the first challenge is that we don't have information about Shunxin. And um, for from very little, which is basically his death, his gravestone in the Falmouth Cemetery and a couple of articles in the Falmouth packet. I had to imagine the story of someone from somewhere else um, who was a certain age and was the only victim of an attack um, in a boat that wasn't even in the service of war. You, they were just the Merchant Navy. Um, so it's really, it felt really like a tragedy to me that someone from so far away would be the only victim. There's a bit of loneliness in being the only victim in war, which maybe sounds really strange, but that is remarked on everything that we have read about him, that he was the only victim here. Um, and I felt like there was this loneliness about him, um, about being buried some, somewhere so far away from where he was originally from, serving so far away. That just called to me, and it called because it's sad. Um, and I felt I had to be true to that sadness when I was writing. Okay, wonderful. Yes, you do mention his home, um, he's wandering about his home on a couple of occasions throughout the piece. Mm. Uh, and the images there are very clear um, and, and transports the listener, I think, to a different place altogether. Had you mm. researched his home at all? Um, the only thing I knew is that he was from Canton, China. Um, I would imagine he would be around water, water if he wanted to be um, a cabin boy. Maybe that was just the job he was lucky enough to secure or that's just the one he, he he could start from to gain other jobs. I researched that there there are few cabin boys that make um, other positions, but it happened. Um, so I, I imagined him in that career path, maybe, and maybe at 27, one of the only details of his life that we know he was 27 when he died. Maybe at 27, he was heading towards maybe senior can cabin boy and from there and I thought about his home I have I have a friend from China and I thought about the kind of images that I've seen um, I have a friend also who traveled through China and I remembered those photographs and those stories and I wanted to create a rural place because I imagined the distance not necessarily to signify truth but to signify that distance um, a place where he he had people looking out for him but they just were away um, and definitely the river was important to, to give him that connection with water, um, to get him to be able to move from where he is somewhere else. Um, I wanted the home present, even though it's a completely imaginary home. Um, we don't know anything else aside that he's from Canton, China. Um, and I looked at images from Canton, China, but it's a huge region, so that it's a bit difficult to determine. He could have been from a gigantic city or from somewhere really rural, but I just place him as far as I could to signify that distance, I guess. Mm. 
This idea of water is is particularly tangible. You mention it several times at the beginning. You talk of the water running through his shirt. You talk about the water that he prepares for shaving. And then you go on to say, these waters, Chung, I say you, that's the captain's words, not yours. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, was, was that intentional, given what you've just said? Um, maybe. I'm mm-hmm. finding that out now. Mm. Yeah, so I guess there is a lot of water. Um, I wanted it to be... Definitely the waters that the captain mentioned is quite important because that um, I researched a lot about what would happen with Merchant Navy and how safe they were um, in World War One, And it changed across the years depending on um, agreements that the German boats had um, with kind of in the overall business of war. One of them was that they would let them know that they would be attacked so people could be saved. Um, because it was civil service, it was an army. But later in the war, and I would imagine that by 1917 that was the case, those um, kind of initial protocols of how to behave were um, were completely ignored. The Germans uh, would attack directly uh, the merchant navy. The merchant navy would carry things like water or food supplies to the navies, to the rest of the navy. So it was important that they were safe, of course. Um, and I also researched and read a lot about how the coast of England would be um, mainly one of the things that the, the U-boats would be trying to control. And that that was one of the tactics that the German army would use to use the submarines to kind of get as many boats as they could. And they had accelerated that campaign across the war. And for a moment, it looked like that would tip the war on the side of the German army. Um, Eventually, that's not what happened. But I would imagine that if you were on a boat, that would be quite a concern because you would see that's that's where we see the, the skippers talking to each other about it. You would see many, many, many boats attacked. Um... And I would imagine that I imagine the captain as kind of trying to get the job done, you know, get to Portishead, but also the life of all these people depend on me, even if I am not in the combative army. So I wanted that worry there. I wanted the kind of shadow of the presence of the U-boat hanging out because it would be uh, something they would be concerned across this time in the war. Mm. You mentioned Portishead. Um, and you mention a couple of places in this story. Mm. Um, would you tell us a little bit about the journey that they're on? Yes, they're, they are traveling Singapore for Portishead. That's another thing of the things we know. Um, it's quite a long trip, that one. Mm, I imagine. Especially during the war. Um, and they uh, the attack happened in the Bristol Channel, so they were pretty close to arriving safely and, and kind of finishing what happened. Um, and if they had arrived, maybe Shin would have been saved um, or they wouldn't have been attacked. Um, so it's, there's there's a lot of stories in World War I, um, obviously in World War II too, but we're focusing in this episode on World War I, where people almost made it. Mm. Um, and the Falmouth Packet is full of stories of, 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 sorry, of that as well, of people dying a day before Armistice Day came in or... Um, just on the day Um, and it just highlighted to me how delicate and how it's a bit of a matter of luck like living (laughs) surviving Mm. it's kind of 
a really delicate thing. Um, that trip, the really long trip from Singapore all the way to um, to Portishead, signified to me other things like how big Shun's career could be, um, how how many trips like that he would have done to be able to be on this ship because it is a gigantic trip and the cabin boys would do a lot of the work um, of the minutia of the of something as big as the tanker that the sequoia was. So I wanted, he would need to be someone capable. He would need to be someone who could uh, withstand such a long journey. Um, so that informed, the journey informed some of the things that he's able to do. And I wanted to be in that day before he died or the day he dies um, with him. Um, yeah, almost about to dog, basically. Mm, oh gosh. That is sad. No, it's very sad. <laughs> um, interesting that you describe him as a, a trainer of other cabin mm. boys. Um, I imagine that that's because he's in the last phases of the, the journey. And mm. so perhaps you'd expect him to have some experience by that point. I thought in mentioning that, that his loneliness was enhanced somewhat mm. in that the, the other boy is a representation of himself, mm -hmm. perhaps. Um, can you comment on that a little bit? Sure. Um, I thought because he was 27, Yeah. Um, I had read that Cabin Boys would start as early as 9, 10. Um, so he would have had, had he started, obviously, um, that early, quite a long career as a Cabin Boy. And that's what I would imagine him training the other ones, knowing the ship like the back of his hand, navigating things like sleeping in the hall um, without even thinking about it um, and almost trusted by the captain as well where this is the reliable cabin boy that I can you know check on things with he will know that the boiler is not working and I wanted to give him a bit of agency when it comes to the work and not just be the lower in the totem pole um, it seemed to me that if he was 27 that he would be an elder brother maybe and that's where the other brothers come in and he might be the breadwinner of his family. So there's lots of responsibility that I imagined for him um, from the little information that we had. And this idea of missing family, missing the brothers and how the little boy and has this kind of childish behavior where he still has a job and has to fulfill the job. Um, and he wants to, to help him do it successfully, um, maybe in his own um, idea of getting further as a cabin boy, maybe having another role in the boats. It would be unlikely for someone like him in that time to gain other roles um, that would need to be with commission or with someone who took pity on him, which happens to one of the other skippers um, who became uh, a skipper through being a cabin boy. Um, but I thought it was important to, to give him something to hold on to, and that would be his career in this case, his, this idea of I know what I'm doing. I can I can teach it. I can look after some people um, and be reliable and be dependent upon across this um, difficult job of of carrying the important things across the war. Mm, absolutely. The way you describe his relationship to the boat or the ship at the beginning, it's almost like there's a it's not a love affair, but it, there's a <laughs> there's definitely a closeness there. Mm. The way he whispers the boat's name, the way that in return the boat cradles him, she cradles him in return is written here. Mm. Um, 
I guess that links back to what you were saying about him knowing the boat so well, because mm. obviously he'd he he'd voyaged on it for for so many years. Yeah. Um, is that right? Well, we don't know. No. Um, but the sequoia was around uh-huh. at least almost ten years before this time, yeah. so it was made in Glasgow in 1908, um, and he went on to fight in the World War Two. Well, to fight to service as a as a tanker in the World War Two, and further than that it really lived a long time the sequoia mm. um but in everything that i have read about sailors and and the navy there's this love to the ship itself there's this um they know it they own it they have this pride for the things that she goes on to do um so i could imagine him had he survived um wanting to stay on her wanting to stay around her um is his home. Is his home for the many months that it would take, or weeks, um, from Singapore all the way to Portishead. Um, he has to clean it. He has to get it ready. He has to know where things are, um, in a way that maybe other people will just stay on certain parts of it. Um, there's photos of the sequoia. It changed name across the years, uh, but I just felt like this could be something he he can have the time to learn and understand. And hold on to across the the war um, in a way that perhaps the coast itself or the town itself would feel a bit more strange because you you don't have the time to really relate to it. You probably will be back on the boat um, quite soon. Um, I also love the name Sequoia. I thought that of all the boats um, names that I've seen, like the Marion, which I quoted, um, is the name of a tree. It's one of my favorite trees. So maybe that's a little bit of that um, coming through. But... I would I would imagine him having like moments with the boat itself, like moments of privacy amongst all of that public life that cabin cabin boys would have, um, and just kind of finding that silence of almost a prayer. I imagine him praying. I don't know why, mm. um, but yeah, in that kind of I'm here. This is it. This is physically the place where where I am and and that I look after. Mm. Yeah. There's one name here that stands out to me as one that you probably haven't made up. <laughs> um, so that's McLeod, the first mate. Yeah. Um, is he a figure that, that featured in, in the true story? Um, not that I know. We do have uh, someone, Robert George James, um, and I just couldn't say that name. <laughs> it, it took me a long time to be able to pronounce that name for the podcast, for the rest of the uh, episode. Right. Um, but I did look for, for actual names of World War I sailors um, and kind of picked and and chose from from what was available there's there's lots of lists of crews um, from the different ships so I went around ships kind of making sure that it would be that Ama Cloud could be mm-hmm. a first mate um, it was made in Glasgow the boat and I wanted a little bit of that kind of hinted towards um, and I have been in the Bay of Kale and it is absolute peaceful and calm so that's when I imagine the, the CV really calm, that it's almost scary and uncanny. Um, that's what I imagine. It's the Bay of Kale. So he, there's that hint towards Scotland because of what Scotland represented, the, the shipyards in Glasgow and all that history. Um, and there were definitely lots of Scottishmen serving in the, in the World War I and World War II, of course. Um, but I wanted, I wanted someone who's also far away 
from everything else. Um, the Bay of Caves in Orkney, that's really, really far away. If you're all the way down in Bristol and you have been from Singapore. Um, so I wanted a little bit of that to kind of tie together with Shun's, uh, Shin's experience, kind of an echo of that distance, um, but what it means for someone who's from somewhere else as well. Mm. Okay, let's talk a little bit about writing and technique. Um, don't laugh. <laughs> <laughs> we do this for a living. So. Um, uh, your use of action and gesture is, is so vivid and specific. It's like you were watching these people moving around <laughs> in their various routines. Um, I've got a little example here. Uh, Shin went about the cabin cleaning and organising with a practised manner. He dusted the maps and traced the coastlines with a mm. finger. Um, I loved that because I could imagine him doing it. How were you able to inhabit these gestures so naturally? Um, um, I don't know is the, is the proper answer. <laughs> yeah. um, let's do the academic answer. Okay. Um, <laughs> I am a very visual person mm. so things come to me when I write as images mm. um, and then I hear the sound and then phrases come on but it is the the actual physical presence of things that appears in my head first like a movie um, with the gesture that gesture specifically I, I tried different images but I wanted him to be interested in in the world I wanted him to to kind of know where he was mm. um, which is Maybe taking a creative license, I don't know if a cabin boy would have access to the maps, but I thought maybe if he's trusted that much, he's 27, he's been there for a long time, he could. Um, and in, in this idea of there's something positive about traveling, um, which I wanted him to experience. Um, with other things, like the, the drop of water that goes across his body mm. when he's washing the things, um, that's something that I connected physically with him because uh, if you are from somewhere else that is not the northern hemisphere like I am, um, you always feel cold even in the summer. Um, you, the warmth of where you're from, and that's that's the part of physically me that I gave him. Um, it, it just never is the same warmth. You just never feel as warm as you would. And it's an immediate feeling when you go home. It's like, ah, that's, this is what it is. And you forget it. You forget it when you're away. Um, I tried to stay really close to them. I tried, especially with him, I wanted to be, I wanted us to see him. Mm. Um, and to see that day, to see what people did around him, um, how people treated him, what was the kind of tasks he would have to do, like getting the breakfast um, or fixing the ropes. The ropes. Um, I wanted that to be really alive as much as we could because we don't have anything else from him. So there might be lots of historical inaccuracies in what I tried to film, but I was thinking about um, about this as kind of Polaroids of his life. Um, and maybe that's why we stay so close to him. Don't know if I answered the question. I love the idea that you don't know anything about him, so you gave him a piece of you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yes, yeah. being cold. Sorry, no, no but that's what that, I think. That's lovely. It's such a lovely idea. Um, you may or may not be able to answer this. It just struck mm. me as particularly clever. Um, hopping through tenses. 
So yeah, yeah. you're a teacher, I'm a teacher. Um, we advise against this. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, you've done it extremely well. I'll read you a bit, shall I? Mm. Okay. Um, he fell imagining his mother's fingers wrapped around the short broom as she brushed the deck of the hut like he brushes the deck of the ship. Held and rocked on the sequoia's floor, he gains a second to dream of embracing his brothers, wet river sand on his feet, mother joining them soon. Yeah. Wonderful. So we're <laughs> in the past and then suddenly we're brought into the moment. Yeah. Um, I wrote it thinking, so there, there's a little bit of information that this is historical information that is tied to that paragraph, mm. is the fact that the sequoia, that the U-boat that hit the sequoia, um, through four shots mm. that two of them missed the boat two of them hit the boat one of them killed Shin so I wanted that one, two, three, four to to happen mm. so one misses he doesn't listen to it one rocks the boat so he'll sense that uh-huh. one he hears because now he's aware something's going on the other one gets to him um, I wanted that kind of jolt of things happening one, two, three, four Um and then there's this, he's thinking, he's, he's remembering what, what his family is like, what his house looks like. Um, and I just felt in a moment, that another thing that's, that the Falmouth Packet says about him is that he didn't see the U-boat until it was going away. Mm. Um, so there's a little bit of time warp there where... Um, the people who narrate what happened um, position himself themselves on Shun and what he was seeing. Mm. So I wanted that to kind of be present a little bit because it's the only thing we know about the way he died, that he, he laid across um, a door that was open and that he apparently saw, although we don't know. So I, I wanted those things to be there. I wanted the U-boat to show up and he shows up in the last line, but... Um, with the time, I felt the remembering is in the past, but it's that moment where everything becomes so alive to you that it couldn't be in the past when you have a shock, like like the trauma of dying. Um, not that I experienced that, thank God, but um, that moment of pause that needed to be, like something gives him, someone gives him. Mm-hmm that moment um so also i didn't is is the story where we get to his death mm. which i felt that we had to because that's the only information we had but i wanted i wanted all of that and i don't know if it worked all correctly i did look back when i was editing i was thinking okay what the hell am i doing here is this going to read the way it needs to read um but it is it is on purpose to this this pan, um, that's not the word, um, to kind of stand time a little and cram things in and then shrink it back in again uh, as much as he could in that really short, narrow time where he dies mm. and where the boat gets attacked because there would be a lot of activity going around. Mm. There would be emergency procedures and things like that. He probably gets noticed that he died really late in the game um, when they know that the boat is safe and someone runs into him or something like that. Um, so I wanted moments in action, boom, boom, mm. <laughs> and moments again in action. Yeah, uh, you really created the desired effect, I think. Oh, it, it jolts you back into, mm. the, I don't know, it kind of narrows the distance between you and the, ca- the reader and the character mm. in that moment. Yeah, it's felt very well timed. 
Um, I have two more questions for you. Sure. Um, one of them, uh, you interviewed me. Yes. <laughs> and you mentioned uh, a word that I used, suspension. Uh-huh. And at the time I can remember thinking, gosh, I don't know how to answer this. <laughs> so um, with that in mind, um, you've used a word here, which I think is so well used because uh, it really alters the image for me. And I'm not sure why, but it's great. It's impeccable. Mm. On the bamboo rafter and the man with the mm. impeccable blue shirt who always gave him passage. Yeah. Why did you select that word? Um, confession, when I was writing this <laughs> man, yeah. um, I had written him as an ancient man, you know, the, the cliche Chinese ancient man. And I was like, no, I cannot do that. Come on, this right. is better than that. Um, but I wanted him to have this very specific detail, the rem- this a specific memory about who that person mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. Um, so that person could come alive for him. Um, not just like, uh, oh, there's someone who gives me passage. No, there's someone very specific who gives me mm. passage. So I said, okay, I'm not going to keep the ancient man because, come on, no. Mm. Mm. no. <laughs> um, and then I thought, okay, he's he's dressed in blue. And the, the description that I had given on the first draft is this Chinese-looking shirt. And I was mm-hmm. like, nope better than that we can do better than that um this is a person and we're not going to make him into a caricature of what a chinese man would be um but i wanted a blue shirt it's just not it's any shirt Mm -hmm. so i wanted him to remember a detail that anchored him to that person and would be impeccable that even though this man is crossing people across the river all the time he's careful enough to have his shirt kind of ironed and flat and it's always clean. It's absolutely always clean. And that's where Impeccable came from. <laughs> Wonderful. Gosh, thank you. That's that. <laughs> Try to avoid cliche. No, it's a really impeccable. good answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, it created exactly that image. Someone mm. doing this job who really thought about his appearance. Yeah. yeah. It's just funny how these details open up, you know, mm. other strands of the story. Last mm. question, Sherazade, you've been asking everyone this question. <laughs> I don't have the answer. <laughs> you don't have the answer? Well, you should have so. planned better. Hey, I didn't have the answer, to be fair. So mm. um, what would be written on your gravestone if you had the choice? Yes. Um, interesting, because I'm looking at gravestones a lot. Mm. And yet, I don't know if I would want one. Um, <laughs> I always say, like, bury me and plant a tree on top of me. Mm. But people could put like a bench and let's say that they would put a nice sign on that bench. Mm. Um, what would it say? Damaris, this question is hard. It is hard, isn't it? Uh, uh, um, maybe I want to go literary and steal a little bit of a phrase. Uh, the rest is silence. <sighs> well done. Boom. You answered that really well. Okay. By stealing someone else's writing. <laughs> Don't do that at home, kids. <laughs> Okay, Sherazad, thank you so much for sharing your process and your thoughts and your research <laughs> with us. Um, thank you for doing such a great job at reading the story. I appreciate it. And for interviewing me. Gosh, you're most welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to episode three of On the Hill. Thank you, Amy, for reading my creative piece and interviewing me for this episode about Shenshin. Stay with us as in each episode we discover a new story, learn more about the cemetery, relay the historical account of someone who once lived, and share a creative response from one of our writers. We are getting a lot of support from our listeners, and for that, we thank you. If you want to lend us a hand, tell somebody about this podcast. Rate, 
review and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to your podcast. It sounds like little, but it really helps. Soon our website will be live. In the meantime, find us on Twitter at We Are On The Hill. On The Hill is written, recorded and produced in Falmouth by me with the help of amazing local people and a host of talented writers. Research about Falmouth during World War I, about the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and about Shunshin by me. Fragments from King George V Address from our cemetery research and from Shunshin's certificate read by Alex Horn. Creative piece by me. This episode was edited by me. Our theme song is Precious Things by We Are Muffy. If you want to find out more about Cornwall and Falmouth in World War I, we suggest taking a trip to the Falmouth History Archive at the Poly. Thanks to its volunteers, as always, for guiding us to the resources we use across this season to learn about Falmouth and its cemetery. You can get in touch with them via email at historyatthepoly.org. If you want to find out more about the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, we recommend looking through their website www.cwgc.org. Join us again next month for our next episode. I am Sherezai Garcia Rangel, and this is On the Hill. To these